I want to I ask you to imagine something. I want, I want you to imagine that you and the person you're in a relationship with, your squeezer. Like, imagine you and your squeezer get engaged. Okay, so now you don't have a squeezer, you have a fiancé. Okay, so you have a fiancé, and, and now you've, you're kind of putting a date down for your wedding, and your fiancé says, okay, I'll handle all the wedding day stuff if you can handle the honeymoon. Sounds like a fair trade, right? In fact, I got the better end of the deal. I'll just have to do the honeymoon. And so I'm like, okay, I'll do the honeymoon. Your fiance is going to do the wedding day. And uh, you're now the honeymoon planner. Imagine this. You're the honeymoon planner. Look at someone and say, you're the honeymoon planner. <laughs> okay, that's your job. That's your job. So I want you to imagine now, a week later, uh, your fiance comes to you and says, okay, well, how's it going? Have you already planned and booked the honeymoon? And you look at your fiance and you say to them, well, I haven't done it yet, but let me tell you what I have done. What I did is I wrote down everything you said to me. Like I wrote down all those details and I've even indexed it. I've highlighted it. I've made some notes and I, I'm, this is so cool. I mean, like, just look, I've written everything you've said to me down and I'm really studying it. So I'm going to get, I'm going to get to it. But for now, I'm just kind of absorbing all the ideas and the information you gave me. Okay, a week goes by, your fiance comes to you and says, okay, have you booked and paid and planned the honeymoon yet? And you look at them and say, well, I haven't yet, but you know what I did this week? Is this week I took all the key points and I put it on post-its and I, I covered my speedometer so every time I want to look at my speed in my car, all I saw was your notes because they're so important to me. Right, I put it on the mirror in my, in my bathroom. Like, so now I'm just, every time I look, I want to look in the mirror, I see your notes because they're so important to me. You know, I even had a meaningful conversation with someone at work today about your notes and about what you've asked me to do. It's just amazing. So I'm going to get to it. But for now, I'm just, you know, I'm just processing. I'm just processing. You can kind of sense your fiance getting more and more frustrated, more and more curious, more and more irritated. When's this actually going to happen? Another week goes by. Your fiance comes and says, okay, have you planned and booked the honeymoon yet? You look at them and say, well, not yet. But you know what I did? Is last night I had a bunch of friends over, just a small group of us, and we chatted through all these notes. I mean, and I shared with them what you want me to do. I mean, it was just such, they, they asked me great, challenging questions, and it really made me think about how I want to move forward. One of my friends bought a guitar, and he wrote a song about it. And he started singing the song about our honeymoon, and oh, I cried, and they cried, and oh, it was beautiful. You, sh you should have been there, babes. It was just amazing. It was just amazing. Right. Can you imagine the frustration that starts to build up in your fiance's heart, which is hopefully the moment they realize they've probably hitched their life to the wrong person, and they break up with you, right? Talk about red flags. Why? Because we know there is a difference between believing something is good and doing something that's good. Believing and doing is not the same. And that's really what we've been kind of wrestling with in this entire series is the difference between believing and doing. And we've kind of wrestled with this idea that you can be a Christian and not follow the way of Jesus. Did you know that? 
You can be a Christian and not follow the way of Jesus. Look at someone and tell them that while I tie my shoelace. I ignored that once, and after all the comments, after this, I'll tie it next time. Okay. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ and not follow the way. And for these early Christians that we read about in Acts, that would have been a crazy idea. That would have been lunacy, this idea, because they didn't even call themselves Christians. Christians was a name given to them by outsiders. They called themselves followers of the way. If you read through the Acts, you read through the accounts of the early church, that's how they call themselves, followers of the way. In, in other words, for them, following Jesus wasn't a belief system. It was a way of life. If I was following Jesus, I wasn't signing up to believe a set of things. I was following up to live a certain way, and Jesus' way of life encompasses all parts of life. It encompasses everything about you. So for these believers, this idea that you can somehow be a Christian and not follow the way would mean that you're not a Christian because to be a Christian means you follow the way. And so we saw last week, there's a big difference between someone who just believes in Jesus and someone who's a disciple of Jesus. A massive difference between a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And a massive difference between a student of Jesus and an apprentice of Jesus. And you can really get the sense of this as you go through the New Testament, even when you book into, uh, bump into the book of James, right? James, the brother of Jesus. You can really hear his frustration around this in James chapter 2. I'm just going to pull out some of the highlights. James 2 from verse 14 says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Verse 17, So you see, Faith by itself is not enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Everyone say dead and useless. So you see verse 24. We are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Verse 26. Just as a body is dead without breath, so is faith dead without good Works, okay, so I think we're getting it. We are not saved by our good works, but we certainly are saved for good works. It's a good works that makes our faith come alive. And so Jesus says, there's this narrow path. If you're gonna follow me, you're gonna be walking down a narrow path, mimicking my life, copying how I lived. And we might start to ask the question, well, how does that look? What's it look like to follow Jesus? What's it look like to, to go down that narrow path and to answer that question? We're going to go to a very familiar scene in the book of John, chapter 13. Now, here in John 13, we're finding Jesus and his disciples around what's famously now known as the Last Supper, something we celebrated together even just this very morning. For those of you who have been a Christian for a while, you'll be really familiar with the Last Supper, but... Even if you're out of the faith, even if you're not a Christian and you don't know much, you most likely know at least the Last Supper, right? That's how famous it is. It's where Jesus sat around this table the night before his crucifixion. And who was he there with? His beloved, his followers, his apprentices, his disciples. And there he is the night before he's gonna be put to death, sitting with all the people following him. And something really significant had just happened as they sat down. I want to give you some of this background before we go into this powerful moment. 
what we see happening just before these disciples sit down is they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the best. Like, Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, who's going to be sitting right there next to you? And they, they kind of get into this debate about, like, power and prestige and status and acclaim and influence. They want to know, like, who's going to be the best out of us. So it's from this setting that Jesus does something remarkable. Let's jump in to the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13, and let's go from verse 2. It was time for the supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Okay, let's pause the story there. This is the first time in the book of John that we get a glimpse, the idea that Judas is gonna betray Jesus. It's a first reference of Judas. I want all of you to just bank that idea. I'm gonna come back to it later. Just bank this idea that Judas is gonna betray Jesus. Okay, but John wants you to know, before he gets into what's about to happen, he wants you to know that Judas is there, the betrayer. He tells us in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Everyone say everything. That he had come from God and would return to God. So Jesus now in this room, John wants us to know his betrayer is there. But the second thing he wants us to know is that the one with all authority is also in the room. And who is it? Who is the one with all authority? Who is the one with all power? Who is the one with all status? Who's the most important person in the room? In fact, John will show you he's not just the most important person in the room at that time. He's the most important person on planet earth at that time. Like there's no one else. He's been given all authority under heaven and earth. So here Jesus is, his betrays at the table. He's sitting there with all authority, all power, all status, like Jesus has it all. And it's from this setting that something remarkable happens. Let's read from verse 4. So Jesus, this man with all power, status, authority, so Jesus gets up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. Jesus gets down this man of great status, the most important person on the planet at that time. He gets up, puts a towel around him, and he washes the feet of the disciples. Now, there were parts of this, elements of this that weren't so uncommon. In fact, feet washing was very much part of the culture of the day. And it makes sense, right? Because they would walk around all day on these dusty roads. They didn't have paved roads, like paved roads were reserved for the very elite and the very important cities, but most of the cities, they would walk around all day in sandals without socks on, because that's how you're supposed to wear sandals. Just, just want to say, if you wear sandals with socks, it's unbiblical, okay? You can come for prayer later. So they would walk around all day in sandals alone, and so you can imagine by the end of the day, their feet got pretty dusty, pretty dirty. It was gross. And so you wouldn't want to walk all that dirt into your home at the end of a long day. You'd need to get your feet washed first. And so there was this custom that people would go into their houses and their feet would get washed. Now, who would do the washing? Well, sometimes it would be the servant of the house. If there was a servant in the house, the servant would go around and wash everyone's feet. 
But not a lot of people had servants, so most often everyone would just come in and wash their own feet. And this week when I was reading up on this, I even learned that sometimes the people who would wash the feet in the house was the kids. And so after today's service, I'm getting my kids around the TV, and I'm putting on this message, and I want to ask them to pay careful attention, right? Because I want some feet washed, man. And so, so who would do it? It would either be the servant or the people themselves, or it might be the kids in the house, hint, hint. But it would never be the guest. Like the guest would never be the one Wash everyone's feet. That's like someone coming over to your house as a guest and then having like vacuum the floor and wash your dishes. Like you're just like, oh no, it's not the guest who does that. That's not the guest's job. And so you can imagine Jesus, this VIP guest, the one with all authority in heaven and earth, the one of all status. He gets up, the guest, the VIP, and he puts a towel around him. You can imagine the disciples' shock and horror and bewilderment. I think it must have just been gone dead silent in that place. They probably heard every little drop, bloop, bloop, like no one speaking, no one sure what to say as Jesus gets down on his knees. Do I, do I say anything? Do I, do I say thank you? Do, do I tell him he missed a spot? Like what do, what do I do, right? Dead quiet. Everyone's shock and awe until we get to Peter. Oh, Peter. All right, we love Peter. We get to Peter, and then Peter finally says what everyone's thinking. And I love how John really paints a scene for us. In fact, he gives us six verbs to tell us exactly what Jesus was doing. And I think John does this because he wants you to imagine it. He wants you to be in the room. He wants you to imagine. He says, Jesus stood up. He wants you to imagine that. Jesus put a towel around his waist. He wants you to imagine Jesus getting down, pouring water, washing feet, drying feet. He wants you to feel the tension, feel the oddness, feel what these disciples are feeling so that when you see Peter's words, they make sense to you because Peter says this in John 13, verse 6. So Jesus came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Lord, are you washing? Like, there's no way this makes sense. In what universe does it make sense for the rabbi to wash the feet of the disciples? You're the one with all the status. You're the one with the authority. You're the one with the power. You're the son of God. Why are you washing my feet? No ways, Lord. This doesn't make sense. This is back to front. This is upside down. This is dear God. This doesn't make any sense. Lord, how can you be the one who washes my feet? And then Jesus responds to him in verse 7. Jesus replied, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but someday you will. And I love it as Jesus is there on his knees by Peter's feet. It's almost like he's saying to Peter, Peter, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till tomorrow. <laughs> you think this is servanthood? Wait till tomorrow. You think this is humiliation? Wait till tomorrow. You think this is extreme? You think this is uncomfortable? You just wait you have no idea the lengths that I will go to to show my love for you. You have no idea the lengths that I'm going to go to to show you how much I care. You have no idea the lengths that I'll go to to lay my life down for you. Peter, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. 
And so he looks at Peter and he says, you don't understand, but someday you will. Peter's still ignorant. He says in verse 8, no, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, well, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And again, Jesus isn't even talking now about the washing of water, the washing of feet. He's talking about the washing away of sins. He's saying, Peter, there's a greater act of service coming where I'll be pouring out not water, but pouring out my blood on your behalf. And I'll be washing not your feet, but I'll be washing your heart free of sin. And unless you let me wash you, you can have no part of me. We can have no relationship. We can have no connection. Peter, unless you let me wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter replies in the most Peter way possible in verse 9, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. It's like, okay, Lord, if that's the case, bath me. <laughs> right? Uh, just so much excess, so much extreme. And uh, I love how Jesus addresses it in verse 10. Jesus replied, well, a person who's bathed all over doesn't need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples, Jesus says, are clean, but not all of you, not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Who's he referencing? The second explicit clear reference is now again to Judas. He's referencing Judas. Again, you can just bank that, put that Second reference of Judas, just put it on the shelf. He goes in verse 13. Well, from verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on the robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I'm doing? And I can imagine Jesus asking that question because of the look of confusion and, ho and, and shock and horror on their faces. Do you understand what I'm doing? Jesus says, you call me teacher. Everyone say teacher. And Lord. Everyone say Lord. Jesus says, you call me these two things, and you are right to, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. Jesus saying is, hey, you keep calling me this Lord. Well, if the Lord can do it, and the Lord is not above it, then you're not above it. You keep calling me this teacher. Well, if the teacher can do it, then you ought to copy him. You, you keep calling me Lord and teacher. But if you're calling me Lord and teacher, that means you should do what I'm saying. You're not above this. And you should copy this. You are my student. You are my apprentice. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, I've given you an example to follow. Now do as I have done to you. John 13, 15. I have given you an example to follow. Now do as I have done to you. That word example is... In the original language, it actually means pattern. Everyone say pattern. It means Jesus is saying, I am giving you a pattern to follow, a pattern to pattern your life on, a pattern to copy. I'm showing you an example, and I want you to base your life on this example. I'm showing you a pattern of how to do life. And guys, this is golden. Because no one knows living better than the God who created living. If you want to know the secrets to living, ask the one who created it. And here he's telling you. He's telling you this is an example of how to live well. This is something to pattern your life after. Live this way. He goes on in verse 16 to say, I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is a messenger more important. 
than the one who sends a message. Listen, you will never out-qualify Jesus. He will always be greater than you. He'll always be your rabbi, always be your teacher, always be your Lord. You will never graduate to a level where you're like, well, I don't need to follow him anymore. No, 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 not this teacher. Your entire life can be set on his example. And so Jesus, this one with all authority, with all power, this one that is greater than anyone else in the room, more important than anyone else on the planet. What does he do with this authority? He uses it to serve others. And if you want to know, how do I walk this path? How do I follow Jesus? How do I find the narrow way? Well, let me tell you, it's through humility and servanthood. Humility and servanthood. Look at someone and say, serve with humility. Church, this is the way. This is the Jesus way. To serve with humility, to use our lives. Jesus did it here as an object lesson when he washed the feet, but he didn't just do it here. His entire life, his entire ministry was one big object lesson of using your authority to serve others, using your power and your status to serve others. You look at him leaving heaven, leaving the realm of heaven, the power of heaven, the prestige and privileges of heaven. And he comes down and he willingly is subjected to being in a human body, willingly comes as a little baby, willingly comes to someone who needs his nappy change and needs to be fed, otherwise he'll die. He puts himself at the mercy of his own creation, willingly stretches out his arms and allows someone to pierce him. His entire life was this great example, this great pattern of, hey, you can use your life to serve others. This is the way. And now I invite you to follow the way. And in doing this, Jesus gets rid of all of our excuses. Look at someone and say, you have no more excuses. Because as the Lord... As the one who's greatest in authority, he does it, so it's not, we're not above it. So there's one excuse, you'll never be above serving. You'll never outgrow it. You'll never become too important, have too much authority where you don't need to serve anymore. In fact, if anything, Jesus shows us, the higher your authority, the greater your service. So that's one excuse. He says, I'm your teacher. And so you've got to do it. So again, there's no excuse for us because Jesus did it. And if we're following him, we do it. But here's the kicker, guys. Remember those two references of Judas I asked you to put on the shelf? You can take it off the shelf now. Because here's the kicker. Even Judas got his feet washed. I want you to think about Jesus in his authority and his power, getting down on his knees next to his betrayer. Next to the, next to the one who he knew in just a few moments' time was going to lead him to his death. And he gets down and he washes his betrayer's feet. Jesus, again, removes any excuses you and I have. Because if Jesus could wash the feet of the hypocrites, then so can we. If Jesus could wash the feet of his enemy, then so can we. If Jesus can wash the feet of the one who would betray him and let him down and disappoint him and stab him in the back to the point of death. And guess what? Like we have no reason to serve, not to serve people. Yes, maybe you know some hypocrites. Yes, maybe some people have let you down. Some people have frustrated you and upset you and offended you and angered you. But guess what? 
If, we, if we're going to do the Jesus way, if we're going to follow him, we're going to do it anyway. Jesus got rid of all those excuses. And then he concludes us in verse 17 with these words. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Knowing is not the same as doing. But now that you know, God will bless you if you do them. Everyone say blessings. It's important we clarify that word when we hear it in Scripture. Because in a very westernized society, often we think blessings means I'm going to get a new car. And the figures on my bank account are going to shoot up. And I'm going to wear some fancy clothes if I do this. No, no, no. The original word blessings there in the Greek, let me tell you what it means. It means happiness, gladness, fulfillment, joy, and contentment. Is there anyone in the room who wants a bit more happiness in their life? A bit more, a bit more gladness, a bit more joy, a bit more contentment, a bit more fulfillment? Guess what? Jesus is showing you the secret sauce. If you want this in your life, take the word from the one who invented living. He tells you how to get it. You serve others with humility. And if you do this, this is a promise of God. You can take it to the bank. You heard at the beginning of the year, he never changes. He doesn't waver. You can take this to the bank. If you do this, God will bless you. He will give you measures of happiness, gladness, fulfillment, joy, and contentment. And I want to tell you, if everything you're doing in your life is just about you, your life is out of balance. If all your effort and your time and your resources is all about building your little kingdom, your happiness and your family and your business and your career, if all your time, energy, resources is just to building your kingdom, I want to say your life is out of balance and that is not the way. Jesus' invitation is for you to use your time, your talents, and your resources to serve people around you, to get your life in balance. That is where happiness lies. And not by knowing anything, not by knowing, but by doing what we know. And so we want to encourage you today to respond to what you now know. And so we're going to end the service a little bit early. We're going to release everyone. We've set up 27 washing stations in our foyer. And we're going to invite you to wash the feet of the person sitting next to you. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I could see the blood flowing down. You're like, why did I sit next to the person I didn't know? I will never bring my friends back here. Okay. So that feeling, I know, I just want to tell you, it can be terrifying, the thought of serving someone. I get it. But church, this is the way. Jesus wants us to live in that way. This is Jesus' point is, do you want to follow me? Do you want to walk the narrow path? Do you want to be my disciple, my apprentice, my follower? Well, then here's what you have to do. Serve with humility. And that means I look at my life and say, who are the people around me I can serve? Perhaps it's people in my house that I need to start serving with humility. Maybe some of you need to serve your spouse with humility, your wife or your husband with humility. Start serving your kids. Start serving that boss that irritates you. Serve them with humility, that boss that you give hardly anything to because you don't like them and you disagree with everything they do. 
So you give them the very least, and then they like you less, and then you like them less, and then it's just a vicious cycle. Stop it. Serve. Serve your coworkers. Serve the ones who rejected you and stabbed you in the back and stole your promotion and got you fired. Serve them. Serve your friends. Serve the ones who rejected you. This is the way. This is the Jesus way. If you are not going to follow Jesus and do what he says, this is what the path looks like. It means I, I lay down my rights. I lay down my authority. I lay down my status. I serve with humility, which means it doesn't matter what, if I'm the greatest in the room, the most powerful, the most influential in my company, it doesn't matter. I serve those around me. I might be the master of my house, but I'm going to serve those around me. Might be the most popular of my friends, but I'm going to serve those around me. I'm going to use all the authority I have to serve the people around me, to wash their feet. And if you do this, your life will be blessed. There is blessing in laying your life down for others and doing good when there's nothing in it for you. Instead of asking, well, what's in it for me? What do I get out of that? How does that benefit my life and my career and my plan? No, no, no. That's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is saying, how can I help you even when it costs me, when I get nothing, when I get nothing out of it, like how can I help you? How can I lay my life down for you? And I want to ask you right now, who are the people you can serve in your life? This is the way, church. This is the Jesus way that you're invited to follow because without following, without the doing, your faith is dead. So can I ask you to close your eyes wherever you're listening to this or watching this, can you close your eyes now? I want this to be very personal. And I want you to think about your life in all its spheres. And I want you to ask the question, where can you follow Jesus? Where can you serve better? Who can you serve better than you are right now? Are there people in your life, maybe in your home, and you're just expecting them to serve you, but today Jesus is inviting you to serve them? Are there people maybe you work with, you share an office with, a boss that drives you crazy? Will you serve them? Can you commit today to following Jesus and laying down your pride? Oh, God doesn't like pride. He comes against the proud. Just laying down your right to be right, laying it down and serving them. Your friends, even people in this church, Will you commit to using your life and your time and your talent and your resources to serving God's kingdom in church? What area of your life can you increase your servanthood? In what area of your life can you increase your humility? I wanna say if you can just take a few steps in that direction, you will find more blessings. You will find more happiness, more joy, more fulfillment, more contentment. Don't let everything in your life just be about you. Then you're out of balance. Make sure you're living for something greater, that your efforts are into something greater. How can you live for others? God, I want to pray now for your family, your children, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to live the way you told us to. We want to walk that narrow path. We want to mimic your life, Jesus, so help us serve better. God, help us lay down our lives. Help us honor you. Help us put you first. Father God, I pray that in everything we do, with everything we are, that we would find ways, creative ways, new ways to serve the people in our homes, to serve our kids, 
to serve our wives and husbands, to serve our friends, our co-workers, our church family. God, help us find ways to serve better. We know you've called us to this, and we know that blessings lie in this. So God, I pray that as people start to do that, as they walk away from the selfishness that this world is shouting at us, as we live different, as we live a different way, God, may they see that blessing. May they see it quickly, I pray, God. May they see that happiness and fulfillment and joy as they serve you and your people. We thank you, God, for your example. We thank you, Lord and teacher, for doing it first so that we can follow. In fact, some of you might just want to make that commitment today just to say, Jesus, I choose to follow you. You might want to pray that quietly in your heart or whisper it out loud. Just, Jesus, I choose to follow you. I'll go where you go. Jesus, I'll do what you do. Jesus, I'll live how you lived. I'll pattern my life after yours. Jesus, I choose to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, that you hear every prayer of every disciple today. In Jesus' name, amen.